All right, we're continuing our study tonight on Christ in the Old Testament, and we're in the middle section of our study. We've already covered all of the Bible prophecies, or most of the Bible prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament, and then what we're engaged in currently is a study through the actual appearances of the Lord Jesus prior to his incarnation in Bethlehem, and uh, these appearances are theologically termed Christophanies, even though that word doesn't, of course, appear in Scripture. It's certainly a a biblical concept. And I've I've written my own um, definition, working definition of what a Christophany is. Let me read that one more time. In a Christophany, the Lord appeared in one location in an actual visible, definite way. They are not, these appearances are not permanent or lasting, but temporary to that moment of history. Christophanies are not an incarnation, but a presentation in which the Lord appears as either a human or an angel, but did not actually become human or angelic. Uh, He temporarily took the form, but not the nature of men or angels. All right, so what we've done so far is we've studied all of the Christophanies in Genesis. We found a total of 22 just in the book of Genesis alone. Um, more than most would be aware of how many times the Lord appeared in those years. And then in the book of Exodus, we covered the first portion of our study last time. Tonight, we're going to finish the appearances in Exodus. We have a total of 14 Christophanies in Exodus. So just in Genesis and Exodus alone, there's a total of 36 that I've, that I've identified as Christophanies, which, um, you know, if... If I had even properly defined what a Christophany is for you and then asked you before our study began how many you might think there would be in Genesis and Exodus, I think we, we most likely would have come up with a number significantly smaller than the 36. So all I make of that is that uh, it, it just demonstrates to me the frequency, the, the sheer number of these Christophanies um, tends to indicate to me just the degree of the Lord's involvement and engagement in his personal presence with his people through especially these first two uh, super important books of the law, Genesis and Exodus. That brings us up then to our uh, final set in Exodus and tonight we're going to start in chapter 23 and I'll read from verse 20. Uh, We In our most recent one, we saw in chapter 20 that the Lord had appeared in a Christophany in the event that we uh, identify with the Mount Sinai appearance as the Lord uh, gives the law to his people. And then here in 23, just after that, uh, the Lord speaking here through Moses, and he says in chapter 23, verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries." 
when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. And uh, from there he goes on to describe more of his purpose in uh, what would become then the conquest of the promised land. So what's happening here is this is not so much these verses in chapter 23 are not so much describing an, uh, an appearance at that moment that the Lord is speaking, but he's describing through Moses to the people of Israel what is going to be a continuing appearance of the Lord in the person of a special angel that the Lord identifies. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared. So there's two options here, and either one is possible. I'm choosing one of the two options. Obviously, we have to choose one or the other. The two options are the Lord could just be speaking about what we would call a normal angel, an ordinary angel. Uh, Not that any angel is normal and ordinary in a human natural perspective, uh, but in terms of as you consider all of the company of the heavenly host of God's servants who are angels, um, this could be just one of those angels, a created being that the Lord is speaking about. But in verses 21 through 23, there's some hints and some details that uh, cause me to see this as more than just an ordinary angel. Uh, Verse 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. This is somewhat unusual for the Lord setting a specific relationship between this angel and his people in which is going to be a relationship of obedience. The idea being that the Lord is now appointing the angel to have real authority over his people. Most of the ordinary angelic appearances in scripture are appearances in which the Lord sends angels on a mission, usually to be messengers to speak some message on behalf of the Lord, but not so much being appointed to be in an ongoing relationship with the people of God, and certainly not an ongoing relationship of authority where the angel has authority over Israel. And that's the case here. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. That's a relationship of authority. And he goes on to say, do not rebel against him, meaning don't rebel against this authority that I am appointing him to have in relationship to you, for he will not pardon your transgression. Now this places the angel in a special kind of relationship, not just a relationship of authority, but a relationship in which he has the discretion to either pardon or not choose not to pardon the people of God and in this case the Lord is warning Israel and saying if you don't heed his voice if you don't obey this angel then he will not pardon you meaning that he has he has the right or the discretion to either pardon or not pardon so again later in the New Testament the Lord Jesus addresses this issue in which Uh, it is clear that only God himself has the discretion to pardon transgressions of the people of God or to withhold pardon from them. And so I see this as a strong and clear hint that this is the Lord 
in an appearance as the angel of the Lord with the ability to pardon or withhold pardon from the people of God in their rebellion. And then this last phrasing in verse 29, excuse me, verse 21, for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. Now, uh, we've studied, it's been some time, but we've studied in great detail as a church the significance of the name of the Lord. And whenever we're talking about the name of the Lord, we're talking about a, um, in, a, in a specific term, a name, uh, the Lord's own attributes and characteristics are invested in his own name so that his name is identified with him and he's identified with his name. So to say in terms of this angel, my name is in him is essentially to say, I am in him. I am identified with this angel by way of nature and character. So I don't think that would be the way that the Lord, and I can't find any other examples of this with any of what I'm calling now ordinary angel appearances, uh, where the Lord spoke such a description of his relationship to the angel. Here the Lord is saying, I am in, my name is in this angel, therefore I am in this angel. So this I'm taking as an appearance of the Lord himself, a Christophany. Um, But verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. So here the Lord links covenant blessing, which is the covenant blessing of I will bless those who bless you and I will oppose those who oppose you. He links covenant blessing to their response to the angel. And then verse 23, uh, he identifies that the angel is going to go before the people of Israel and he is going to be the cause of their conquest and their takeover of the promised land. All right, so what is the presentation here? This is in the category of what we've previously identified, the angel of the Lord. I see the Lord presenting himself here as the angel of the Lord to his people. Angel here would be with a capital A. It's a special category of angel. It's not literally or technically an angel at all that's being described. This is the Lord presenting himself as an angel. And the purpose of this particular Christophany is the Lord assuring his people of his presence for his purpose. And this is, again, in a special category, even among all of the Christophanies. And I've mentioned a couple of these already. Most most of the Christophanies are not like this, but this one is. Uh, This is describing not a single day, for instance, that this angel is going to appear to the people of God, and then he'll disappear and be gone. This is describing an extended period of time where the angel is going to lead them from where they're at right now, which is at Mount Sinai, at the beginning of their wilderness journey, he's going to lead them through a 40-year journey in the wilderness, and he's going to lead them, as it says, all the way back in verse... uh, all the way back in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, meaning throughout the entire 40-year journey in the wilderness and to bring you to the place that I prepared. The place he's prepared is the promised land. So this is a description of, this is going to be an extended Christophany as the angel of the Lord is going to lead them for an extended period of time. It doesn't last forever. So in that sense, it is still temporary in comparison to the 
the big picture of world history, but in terms of how Christophanies normally function, a single day's appearance, this is going to be an extended appearance of a minimum of 40 years in the future. All right, from there, let's go to the next chapter, and we'll find two Christophanies in chapter 24. The first one, let's start reading in verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, and by the way, we're still scenery-wise, setting-wise, we're still with the children of Israel here, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They have not left yet. Uh, The law has not actually been fully revealed yet, and especially the blueprints for the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, have not been given yet. So we're still at Mount Sinai. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, who are the two, uh, two eldest sons of Aaron at this point, and 70 of the elders of Israel, which is um, at this point in their history, we're talking about just a core group of spiritual leaders, the f- functioning as, in a sense, the government of Israel on a human level. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up So now, uh, in the prior interaction between the Lord and his people on Mount Sinai, the Lord had, remember, instructed the people. He had set a perimeter around the mountain, and he had told them, get ready. I'm going to present myself to you. I'm going to appear to you. There's going to be a Christophany, in essence. But he set a perimeter around the mountain and told everyone, get yourself ready, consecrate yourself, get spiritually prepared for this appearance and do not transgress the boundary that I've set around the mountain. If you do, there's going to be judgment. And then the Lord, out of that circumstance, when he descended upon the mountain, he called Moses alone and only Moses to come up the mountain to him. Now Moses has returned to the camp. And in this situation, the subsequent situation, now the Lord is expanding the boundaries of his covenant fellowship with Israel and he is allowing, and through you know, not a direct commandment, but simply uh, apparently the Lord stirring the hearts of the, the, the chief governors of Israel, Moses, who is, of course, the, the prophet and the leader of the people, Aaron, who is the high priest, Nadab and Abihu, who are going to be priests serving under their father, and then 70 of the elders, they go up. We're not told whether they reach the actual summit of Sinai, but somewhere between the camp at the foot of the mountain and the summit, uh, they go up and verse 10 tells us, interestingly, which then identifies for us that we're dealing with the Christophany, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he, this is God, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, this is a wonderful uh, event and a wonderful description that's going on here. Um, one is we have to answer the question, how is it that they saw the God of Israel? When everywhere else throughout Scripture tells us and even on into the New Testament, that God 
the Father is invisible. It's one of his essential attributes. Invisibility, not perceivable, perceivable through natural vision. So God the Father can be present in a circumstance, but your natural eyes would not perceive him, would not be able to see him. And yet, we have here, and that, that's a, an irrefutable biblical principle about the nature of God. And yet we have here this description in verse 10 that they saw what we could call the unseeable. So how do you see something that cannot be seen? How can you see someone who cannot be seen unless that one makes himself visible through some mechanism by his own appointment? And the mechanism is this whole concept we're studying of what we call Christophanies. So God the Father has never made himself visible throughout all of human history. But he has made himself visible through the person of his son. So much so that when the Lord Jesus was teaching his disciples in the night of the Last Supper, and he said this to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So how can you see a father who cannot be seen? You see him in the person of his son. So they saw the God of Israel, and therefore we can only rightly theologically conclude that the one that they saw was not God the Father, but they saw God the Son, who is the God of Israel, the God of the covenant. So they see the God of Israel, and then the next description is just to emphasize that we're dealing with a human form of the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet. So the God of Israel appeared to them and we have no other description of him, physically speaking, other than he had feet. And again, God the Father does not have feet. Now, we can speak theologically, symbolically, about the feet of God the Father, but they're not actual physical, substantive feet. They're only feet in a conceptual sense, in that God the Father can sit upon the throne, and it can be described to us that the earth is his footstool, as if he is so great and so magnificent and so so large, spiritually speaking, that as he sits upon his throne, he rests his feet upon planet Earth. But there's not actual God the Father feet on planet Earth in a physical sense. And I I think we can all understand that. So here they see the God of Israel, who is the second person of the Trinity here, God the Son, in a visible physical format or presentation. And under his feet, as it were, they saw a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now, just for the sake of our time, I won't take us into the book of Revelation, which uses this same identical imagery to describe what John the Apostle saw when he was transported from earth to heaven and saw a heavenly vision of the throne room of God and saw God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the sense of the direct presence of the Lord in heaven, 
and saw him seated upon the throne of God and under his feet and around the throne was a pavement like sapphire, which is simply a a wonderful image of heaven itself. It's a heavenly element here to this appearance. And so the idea in this particular Christophany is that God the, the Son is making himself visible to the eldership and the governance, the leadership of Israel. And what's taking place here is they're catching a glimpse of heaven come to earth in this circumstance. Just in the same way that Jesus later teaches his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and the in the instruction that we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here, what you see in this, this representation of God being visible and under his feet, a sapphire pavement, which mirrors identically the same scenario that actually takes place in heaven at all times. The idea being that God is showing that he is enthroned on earth just like he is enthroned in heaven and he is revealing his enthroned presence to his people here in this particular Christophany. Now in verse 11, the, the statement, I don't think we're meant to take literally, He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. It's not so much that the focus here is on the literal hand of the one that was appearing to them, but this is wording which just simply means he did not judge them. He he called them unto himself. He revealed himself to them in a throne room kind of appearance. But in that setting, which normally when people approach the throne of God, they do so for the purpose of judgment. They do so for the purpose of being held accountable for their sins and then receiving the just recompense for their actions and their choices from the judge who sits upon the throne. And this wording, he did not lay his hand upon the chief men of the people of Israel, simply means not that they didn't deserve to be judged, all human beings do, But the point being that they are now in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And because they're in a covenant relationship with the Lord, their sin issue has been resolved in the blood sacrifices of the covenant. And therefore, they, as they approach the throne of God, they are recipients only of blessing rather than recipients of judgment. So uh, in this circumstance, it's very similar to the passage in in the book of Hebrews, which tells us that we, we, are, um, we are enabled now by the grace of God to, to approach his throne because we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens on our behalf. And therefore, his throne to us is no longer like a throne of judgment, but it is for us a throne of grace, as Hebrews describes, and mercy to help in our time of need. And so I see a very similar thing uh, being revealed here. So um, what's the presentation? I want to link the specific presentation to the very last phrase in verse 11, which I haven't identified yet or haven't focused on yet. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. 
They beheld God, and interesting, interesting little detail added here, they ate and they drank. Now, you know, normally, if you can imagine putting yourself in their shoes, for the first time, I mean, Moses has had a direct revelation of the Lord's presence prior to this, but Aaron's never experienced this in this way. Nadab, Abihu, and certainly the 70 elders of Israel have not yet experienced this. They're in the immediate and direct presence of God himself. And you would think they would probably lose their appetite in that circumstance. And yet in this revelation, the Lord stirs their hearts. They have the idea. We don't have a discussion going on. They don't seem to, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of got a gnawing uh, hunger in my belly here. What do you guys think about catching a bite to eat while we're interacting with God here? It's not like that. What's clearly happening here is that because the covenant has just been established between the Lord and his people, it's very similar to <clears throat> like when we have a wedding ceremony, which is our, our best representation in current culture of a covenant relationship being formed. Right after the wedding ceremony, and it's still true to this day, even in our culture, which is way far away from biblical awareness nowadays, but what's the one thing that happens in the typical and usual wedding ceremony right after the ceremony proper ends? We have then a celebratory meal that takes place immediately after the ceremony. And that's what's going on here. The Lord is his sharing with the people, even though there's no wording here that says that um, God himself ate and drank, but there's no wording either that, that forbids that conclusion from being drawn. The emphasis, though, is on the people, Moses, Aaron, his sons, and the 70, uh, beholding God and eating and drinking, meaning they are now sitting down in the presence of the Lord and they're enjoying the, the blessings of covenant celebration with the Lord. So I see the presentation here is the Lord as the covenant participant meaning that he's not just the one that has called them into a covenant, but he's the one who has joined them in covenant relationship. And the, the purpose then is the Lord, I believe, sharing a celebratory covenant meal with the leaders of Israel who represent, of course, the entire holy nation of the Lord. All right, I said there's two in this chapter, and the next one starts in the very next verse, verse 12. So I'll read from 12 to the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you and behold Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. 
Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. All right, so here uh, we have a subsequent appearance of the Lord. Even though the Lord appeared in verses 9 through 11 to the entire assembled group and they ate and drank, this is an appearance that's only going to be shared with one, which is Moses himself. So he's called to the mountaintop, the cloud, the same pillar of fire and cloud that's led them so far to this mountain, now descends directly on the mountaintop. And the cloud covers the mountain. And then in verse 16, we're told that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. This wording indicates personal presence and personal habitation. So in this moment of history, and this will not be permanent, but in this moment of history, the Lord moves into Mount Sinai as though Mount Sinai is his home. Now, throughout covenant history, throughout biblical history, history, what we have is a series of homes, places that the Lord in his personal presence will call home on earth. In the, in the ultimate sense, heaven is his home, but now he's making his home among his people on earth. And there are certain locations throughout biblical history where the Lord chooses to do this. For instance, we can make the case that uh, the Garden of Eden was the first home of the Lord on earth in his interaction with Adam and Eve. Then later, we could say that the Ark of Noah was the second home in which the Lord shared covenant salvation with his people and was present with them on the Ark throughout the duration of the flood event. And on and on throughout different portions of history. Later, in the book of Exodus, we're going to see the tabernacle being constructed. And in our final Christophany tonight, we're going to see the Lord moving into the tabernacle, making it his home. In a later portion, which we will study, not tonight, but um, soon, we're going to see that Solomon will be appointed by the Lord to construct the temple of God to replace the tabernacle. And when he completes that work, the presence of the Lord will move into the temple and make the temple his home. And then later, still, of course, in the incarnation of Christ, we'll see that the Lord moves into the physical body of Jesus as he is, as he is formed in the womb of Mary, and that body will be his home. And then even later than that, we see the church being identified as the temple of God in a new covenant setting where that will be his home. But in one of the overlooked home references in scripture, this one here in Exodus twenty four sixteen tells us that for this moment of history, the Lord moved onto the, the summit, the peak of Mount Sinai and made it his home, at least for these 40 days and 40 nights, where he calls Moses into the cloud with him and then uh, shares and reveals all with Moses that he intends to show him during that 40 day and 40 night period. So in this one, The presentation I'm going to identify in a distinguishing way from an earlier Christophany. Remember, we started in Exodus all the way back in chapter 3. The first Christophany was the burning bush appearance of the Lord. And in that appearance, the Lord revealed himself to be a fire, like a fire, in that 
the bush was burning, but it was not being consumed. And I said the presentation of the Lord in that appearance was he was uh, making himself known as an unconsuming fire for the sake of the assurance of Moses that the bush represented Moses and the people of God in that scenario, showing that in this covenant relationship, they could have the confidence that they would not be destroyed by that that close proximity to the Lord who is as a fire. But here in this case, uh, what we see is in verse 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So here the Lord reveals the other aspect of why it is that he appears to his people like a fire. The first is in a, in a an assurance way, and this one is in a in a challenging way to make sure his people understand that if you're going to be in a covenant relationship with him, there's going to be something that he is committed to in that relationship. And what he's committed to is the theological principle that we call sanctification. He's committed to not just changing us in the initial experience that we have of coming to know the Lord, but he's committed to an ongoing change process in us. Whereas he is as a fire interacting with our soul in this covenant relationship and burning away inside of us everything that is unlike him. So that um, in a progression of experiences with the Lord as we grow in the Lord, uh, those, those things that are unlike him and not pleasing in his sight are consumed and God reveals himself as a consuming fire. Later in the book of Hebrews, um, Paul the Apostle quotes this passage and applies it to new covenant believers. And he says, for our God is a consuming fire. The idea is not consuming us in the sense of burning us up, but consuming things or qualities or characteristics within us that are yet not pleasing and not, not fitting for his purpose for our lives and our relationship with him. The purpose here of this particular appearance, I believe, is that the Lord met with Moses during this 40-day and 40-night period in order to reveal two things to him, which then unfold over the next several chapters. One is the revelation of the law, the the, uh, two tablets of the law. That's why the Lord told him at the beginning of this appearance, as he's calling him to come up to the mountain, take two tablets of stone with you, in which the, the law is going to be written. And he's going to give him the instructions, the details for the construction of the tabernacle, which will be the new home of the Lord as he will move out of Mount Sinai and into the tabernacle once it's complete. All right, let's look at another one. Um, Chapter 33 now. This one is shortly after the one we've just studied. And just in the setting of what's going on here, uh, the tabernacle at this point is not yet constructed. Moses is back down from the mountaintop, and he's back with the people of God, and the Lord has not yet moved from the summit of Sinai down into the camp of Israel in the sense of moving into the tabernacle. But the Lord wants to interact with his people in a very direct 
and personal way and specifically interact with Moses in that way. And so in verse 7 of chapter 33, we get this description of what was called. It wasn't a lasting structure, but it served an important purpose at this moment of history before the tabernacle is complete, a structure that comes to be known as the tent of meeting. Now Moses used to take the tent. This is not the tabernacle tent. This is another tent. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. The camp is where all the children of Israel were setting up their tents in order to to live. And so this is a, a tent that is going to serve the Lord's purpose, but he stirs Moses to to pitch or to erect this tent far outside the perimeter of the camp of Israel. And Moses called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now this tent is serving, as I'm saying, it's, it's like a temporary purpose to represent the Lord's intention and desire to camp in the midst of his people. Before the tabernacle tent is finished in its construction. <clears throat> but why doesn't the Lord erect that tent, this tent of meeting? Why doesn't he have Moses erect the tent inside the camp if the Lord's intention is to dwell in the midst of his people? And that's his stated intention all the way through scripture. God's desire and covenant is to dwell in the midst of his people. But here Moses sets the tent of meeting up outside and it's even the emphasis is even um, in verse 7 Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp so why that detail why not in the midst of the camp the idea here is that the people are not yet consecrated as they will be in order to have the Lord's presence in the midst of their camp. Because the tabernacle has not been constructed yet, it has not been completed, God has not moved into the tabernacle, and the most important aspect of the tabernacle as far as consecrating the people of the Lord will be the sacrificial system, which will go into action as soon as the tabernacle is completed. It's in the sacrifices of the tabernacle that the Lord is dealing with the sin issue that separates his people from him. So because that issue has not been fully resolved yet, the closest the Lord can come to the camp (coughs) is outside the camp and far off from the camp. He's still able to meet with Moses because he's already dealt with that issue in Moses. 
but he has not yet dealt with that issue in the entire camp of Israel. And so the Lord meets in this interim period before the tabernacle is complete. He meets with Moses at the tent of meeting. Moses goes into the tent of meeting. The, the glory cloud, the Shekinah cloud, the pillar of fire and cloud comes and literally uh, positions itself right outside the doorway, which is basically saying, I'm now going to go into the tent and meet with Moses. But it's right outside the doorway of the tent of meeting so that none of the children of Israel would presume and dare to try to pass through that pillar in order to join Moses inside the tent. So this is a meeting of one to one. And then that's emphasized for us in verse 11, where the Lord says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. And this is just again emphasizing, this is now a functional Christophany that's taking place here. The pillar of cloud now is right outside the tent, but God himself is inside the tent with Moses, meeting with him as a friend does with a friend in a face-to-face appearance. So the presentation here I see is the Lord revealing himself as the friend of Moses, meaning they have a covenant friendship relationship now. And the purpose of it is the Lord showing covenant friendship to his people through the representation of the leader of Israel, who is, of course, Moses. All right, we've got another one in chapter 33. Let's skip down to verse 18. We've got three more to cover. I think we'll have, if I speed up a little bit, we'll just have enough time to cover these tonight. In chapter 33, one of my favorite uh, Christophanies. I'll start reading in verse 18. There's been a problem between where we stopped reading about the tent of meeting and where we're about to meet, and that is uh, the people are still struggling in their relationship with the Lord, and and uh, Moses is crying out in order for the Lord to go with them in their journey, and then taking that desire one step further, in verse 18, Moses cries out and prays in this way. Moses said, he's speaking to the Lord, please show me your glory. And now the Lord responds in verse 19. And he said, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Meaning the Lord simply declares here, this portion is later quoted by Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 9 when he is teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation and an election. But here the Lord is emphasizing in his relationship to his people that he is the one in position of ultimate freedom, not his people. His people have freedom, the freedom from their old life, the freedom from Egypt, the freedom from their former enslavement, but they are not ultimately free because their, their freedom from sin and their old life has simply has transformed them into servants of the Lord. But the Lord in this relationship is entirely and totally free. So he emphasizes that by this statement, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, 
There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. Now, this is all in relationship to the prayer of Moses, which God is he's in the process of, he's about to answer this prayer. The prayer was, Moses cried out, show me your glory. And the Lord is essentially answering him and saying, okay, I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to give you what you've requested of me, but I can't show you the fullness of my glory. If I showed you the fullness of my glory, you would not survive the experience. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, in a sense, a a modified expression of the fullness of my glory. So he says, there's a place by me, and um, there you will stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So the Lord gives, him, gives Moses an answer to his cry, but he does so with a double protective provision. The first is he places him in a cleft of the rock, kind of like the idea being, <clears throat> it's almost like a, a bomb shelter. He's placing him in a protective circumstance because uh, if he were not in this circumstance, the implication is, it would just overwhelm him. He's, he's got the safety and security of the rock behind him. And then he says, I'm going to cause my glory to pass by you, but as I do so, I'm going to place my hand over you so you can't see it. The idea being if he did see it, he wouldn't survive it. But once he passes by, the Lord says, I will then take away my hand and you will not see my face, <clears throat> but you will see my back. And I believe we're meant to understand this as not simply that the Lord passes by in a human form, which he does, and that Moses then sees a bare human form, but what he sees is a glorious human form passing by. And he's allowed to see the backside of the Lord, which I think we're meant to spiritually understand this as he's allowed to see the afterglow of the Lord's glory, not the not the full presentation of the Lord's glory, which would overwhelm him and obliterate him, but he's allowed to see the afterglow. And in that uh, reception of the Lord's revelation of his afterglow, uh, there is the answer to the prayer that he prayed, Lord, show me your glory. And so here I see the the presentation as the Lord is the glorious one, that he truly is. This, <clears throat> at this moment of history, this is more of the Lord's glory than he had shown to any other human being up until this moment of history. And the purpose is the Lord answering the prayer of Moses to see as much as he could see of the glory of the Lord. All right, the next Christophany is in the very next chapter, first eight verses. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Now why two tablets of stone like the first? What had happened to the first set of stone tablets on which the Lord had written his law? Moses had come down from the mountain, you remember, and as he came down, he saw that the children of Israel were sinning in the camp, while he had been up on the mountain beholding the glory of the Lord and receiving the law. And in his uh, indignation, 
Moses threw the, the freshly minted tablets of the law down on the ground, breaking the tablets, signifying that the children of Israel, before they had even received the law, had already broken the law. <clears throat> and so now the Lord wants to replace those broken tablets with new ones. So he tells him, cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Meaning, clear indication here, the Lord is waiting for him on top of the mountain in in a personal presence way. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud, and then this wording gives us the clear indication, if we haven't seen uh, that description in this appearance yet, clear indication that this is a Christophany event. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Um, this, this proclamation of the Lord's name is essentially functioning as what we would call the Lord's side of the formation of this new covenant relationship with Israel. And this proclamation of his name is functioning like what we would see in a wedding ceremony of the vows that are taken that cement the covenant relationship. And the Lord's own nature is the vow that he takes toward his people to to be and to act consistently with his own nature in this special (coughs) covenant relationship (coughs) with his people. Excuse me. Uh, The presentation here, I think the Lord as the lawgiver, simply ensuring that they have a new copy of the Ten Commandments on the second set of the tablets of stone and the purpose, the Lord restoring his broken law to his people who most desperately need to receive it. All right, that leaves us with one final Christophany for tonight. And let's go to the very last chapter of Exodus, chapter 40. I've been talking all the way through our study about the Lord's intention to have a tabernacle, a tent-like structure to be built for him. And uh, when you get to chapter 40, keep your place there. And I'm just going to go back to chapter 25 and read one verse. You don't have to join me for that. Just listen. Chapter 25, verse 8, is when the Lord first um, identified his intention to have the tabernacle built for him. He says in verse 8 of chapter 25 to Moses, let them make me 
a sanctuary. Sanctuary meaning, yes, it's a holy place, but it's going to be a holy dwelling place for the Lord. And it's going to be erected in all of their camping spots for the years to come. It's going to be erected in each place where they will camp for a period of time on their 40-year journey. And as they arrive at each camping spot, the very first structure that's going to be erected in the new spot, the new location is going to be the tabernacle of the Lord. And then all of the tents of the children of Israel are going to be erected in a encircling pattern around the tabernacle of the Lord. This is going to change permanently the Lord's relationship with his people for the first time dwelling in the midst of his people. But here he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, specifically for the purpose his intention is so that they that he can live in the midst of his people. <clears throat> so now let's head over to chapter 40 and we'll read what happens when finally, uh, sometime later, all of the detailed instructions that the Lord gives to Moses for the construction of the tabernacle is followed. And we'll pick up in chapter 40, verse 33. And he, this is Moses, he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Now the work here is the work of constructing the tabernacle. But here we have a representation of what we call the finished work of the Lord. And so now that the, the work of the Lord is finished in this intention to have this tabernacle constructed, verse 34 tells us, in immediate relationship to the finishing of the work, then the cloud, so it's the same cloud that's led them across the Red Sea, led them into the wilderness, led them out of Egypt, led them to the foot of Mount Sinai, the same Shekinah glory cloud that, that descended upon the mountain and, and, and the Lord in that cloud met with Moses for that 40 day and 40 night time period on the mountain. Now that same cloud moves from the mountaintop of Sinai into a new dwelling place. The Lord dwelt on Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Now he moves into his home, his new home, which is the tabernacle, down at the foot of the mountain in the midst of the camp of Israel. The Lord covered the tent of meeting, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, meaning the the presence of the Lord has moved into his new home. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord fulfilled or filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, meaning this is a, a description in advance then of the next 40 years, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire and fire was in it by night. In the same way that it was a, a cloud of, uh, of smoke during the day and a, uh, a, a pillar of fire at night leading the camp um, and lighting the camp. Now that same presence and that same manifestation 
is filling the tabernacle itself. So the, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so here I see the presentation being, of this Christophany being the Lord as the one who dwells in the midst of his people, uh, filling, fulfilling his purpose to make a home with his people and that being the purpose of this one, the Lord making his home with his people Israel. For the very first time in their covenant relationship, the Lord is now moved into a home in the midst of the camp of his people. All right, that brings us to the end of our studies in Christophanies in Genesis and Exodus. We still have a few more to go in the remaining. There's, there's one or two more in the, uh, the remaining books of the law, but then there's a, a, a few that we still have to study in what are called the writings, meaning the books of the Old Testament that are not the, the prophecies later in the Old Testament and not in the law. So that intermediary uh, set of books between the law and the prophets came to be known later as the writings. So we're going to look in our next study at the Christophanies that are found in the writings. All right, God bless you tonight. Thanks for coming.